I didn't set out necessarily to write a book about race. I wanted it to be a book more about what it means to be a young Black woman. Yes, going through all these things, but also what happens when that kind of trauma, not just racism, but sexual assault, sexual violence is placed on your body, then what happens to you? Eternity Martis is a Toronto-based journalist, author, and advocate. She's also a best-selling author of her first book, They Said This Would Be Fun, Race, Campus Life, and Growing Up. Eternity's work focuses on issues of race, gender, and taking the deep dives into her own experiences and sharing them with the world. Her stories are real, raw, and relatable. Welcome to The Safe Haven. I'm your host, Amanda Lytle. The Safe Haven offers a collection of conversations about life's challenges and the pivots we make in order to keep moving forward. This conversation took place last summer and the episode was originally released August 10th, 2020. I chose to re-release it for numerous reasons, but mostly to shift you over to her page and into her book. This conversation covers so much about Eternity's journey writing the book and many of the topics and experiences shared within. We talk about setting boundaries and the challenges that come with having to reassert yourself and reestablish boundaries time and time again, but how crucial that is for our physical, mental, sexual, emotional, and spiritual health. We talk about what love is and what it isn't, and the hard lessons that come with navigating love on its own. We discuss the theme of abandonment that is laced throughout Eternity's story and how she's had to navigate both gender and race as a mixed woman, her mom from Pakistan and her dad from Jamaica. I get excited about conversations with my guests, but there is something about the level of relatability and raw vulnerability in this conversation with Eternity that really got my heart racing. A warning before we jump in that the content relates to sexual abuse and assault with some explicit language. Let's jump in. I've wanted to write this book for as long as I can remember. Like I wanted to write this book the second I stepped into London, like from then. So that's been, it's been 10 years in the making and to have it now, it feels, it just feels so wild to me. Like two years ago when I I was living uptown and I was just just like a sad girl. Like I had just graduated from my master's. I didn't know what was going on in my life and I was super sad and I'm like, I have this book and I'm just going to write this book. And I just had blind faith. I didn't have a publisher. I didn't have an agent. And I'm like, I just have this book. And I was dedicating every single weekend, every single day to writing. So to see it happen now, it's like, it's wild to me. Mm -hmm. I can imagine that first moment of holding the actual hard copy book of it would have been like a dream because because even having read the book and just the way that your grandfather's support pops up throughout the entirety of the book is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I felt so connected to that love and that support. He must be beaming. Yeah, he is. He's very, very proud. One of my favorite things that he does is um, he buys copies for other people. So I'll just be like, like, you know, they can buy it online. He's like, no, it's okay, I'll buy it. He's just shipping them out. And I have family in Pakistan. So he's just shipping books to everyone. Um, He's really, really proud. I think that my my mom and my grandfather didn't actually know what the book is about. So for like a decade, I've been like, I'm writing a book and the book is about me. But I only let them read it. The book came out at the end of March. I only let them read it in February. And we were finally able to talk about all the things that happened in the book. But I think once we had that conversation, I think they were shocked because they're like, 
like, oh my gosh, we had no idea you were going through any of these things. But now he's just, he tells everyone, like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a bit like, I won't tell someone. If someone's like, oh, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm a journalist. He'll be like, she wrote a book. She wrote a book. <laughs> like, you should read it. It's a bestseller. That's really, really sweet. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm so curious about the kinds of conversations that would have come up after your family read the book. I mean, mm-hmm. the way with which you write, it's raw and it is real. Mm-hmm. And you don't sugarcoat. So how, I mean, even the conversations about navigating identity throughout this, how, how did your family take that after having read the book? Yeah. So I would say that all of like everything that's in the book, my family had no idea that I was going through. And it's not that I didn't trust them. Like it's in the book. I, I adore my family. They've been nothing but supportive from the beginning. I, there were never any gender roles in my family. No one ever said you have to do this. And so I come from a very supportive, liberal, progressive family. But at the same time, it's a Brown family. And Brown families, we don't talk about mental health. We don't talk about, um, we definitely don't talk about partying. Even though my mom, as you can tell in the book, she's she's quite like, she partied. She would race guys on the street in her car. So, but we still never spoke about it. And my mom is the only one in our family who uh, had a baby out of wedlock, had a baby with a black guy, like was unmarried. So what had happened was these conversations, when we had these conversations, it was just all tears, really. Like, it was all tears. It was all crying. Um, like, my mom and my grandfather were both like, we didn't know this was happening to you. Like, why didn't you tell us? Like, what could we have done? And to me, it was just like, we couldn't have done any of those. You couldn't have helped in any of those ways, right? Like, these are things that I would have to go through myself, like, as a woman, as a young, as a young woman, as a student. And so we had the conversation. It was very painful. But I think it really solidified um them being allies and in the book I, I talk a lot about my identity and being black and south asian and up until the book came out and maybe even a couple of years before that they finally started to see me as a black woman mm-hmm. and it was constantly this thing where they'd be like uh, i don't get it so i'd come home and be like this woman called me the n-word and they'd be like but you're not black and i'm like yes i am and so they never really understood what it meant for me to be a black woman. And I think they kind of saw it as a betrayal in ways for me to see myself as a black woman. So to read it now, they totally get it. But it's just so wild because in the book, I'm, I, I described the way they saw me and they saw me as brown or they saw me as nothing. And in the last week, a couple of my family members on my mom's side, on the Pakistani side, have called me and they've been like, this is going to sound wild, but until you read, I read your book, I only saw you as brown. Like I never saw you as black. And so it kind of reaffirmed or confirmed what I, what I knew to be true. Mm-hmm. I think that just even the way that you write about that, I mean, myself as a white woman, I've never had to navigate the identity of being mixed, right? And just trying to figure mm-hmm. that out. And you write about it so beautifully in the book. One thing that I had written down to ask you about is the tone of um, dislike for yourself throughout the book. And mm-hmm. there is actually a part in the book where you talk about the dislike that you have for yourself. Growing into adulthood, how have you navigated that and kind of grown through learning to like and then to love yourself? I think that's something, I think of all the things in my life, that's the one thing that has been constant and the one thing I'm still working through. Mm-hmm. 
uh, through the book, you kind of, you see myself dislike myself in a number of ways um, as not being black enough or not being brown enough or not being white enough mm-hmm. um, or being that like quote unquote Oreo, right? Like I'm a black girl who has an education. I speak a certain way. So never quite knowing who I am and going into this experience, not knowing who I am. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that came down to feeling like I had to take on these expectations, be perfect, look perfect, Mm -hmm. speak a certain way um, in relationships and have a whole chapter on it. Being that perfect girlfriend, right? What Cosmo magazine said, do this, do that. So you don't seem like a nag. And so I struggled with a lot of that and all of my relationships, whether they were romantic or friendships, they all crossed my boundaries, but it was because I didn't have any boundaries because I felt that if I had boundaries, and I loved myself and put up those boundaries, I would lose everyone around me. Mm-hmm. And I talk about it in one of the chapters and how it stems from my dad. But I think going into adulthood, one thing I'm very actively working on, especially in this pandemic, is where did that self like that self-dislike come from? And how do I start to love myself? And how do I start to put up boundaries and see boundaries as loving myself and not 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 loving myself I guess like I think I've spent so much time thinking like if I if I stand up for myself if I say you know what I'm uncomfortable with this that I'm gonna hurt someone else but I never gave myself any thought like I never thought about that and I'm starting to realize that all of this in all these ways I've disrespected myself so how do I get back that power and that self-love and that's something I work on every single day Mm -hmm. it's such a journey it's such a journey oh it's exhausting, um, but it's worth it. I think it's one that's, I feel like it's the last lesson, honestly, that I need to learn. And it's mm-hmm. the hardest one to learn. Mm-hmm. I'm going to link for that back to something that you mentioned pre-recording, because it's going to kind of weave into the chapter that you wrote to one of your exes called Visible Bruises that we're going to get to. Mm-hmm. But pre-recording, you and I had talked about the importance of learning those lessons first, and especially in relationships. And when it comes to dating and changing your ways and transforming so that you stop repeating those old, super harmful, toxic, detrimental patterns. Yes. Can you tell me about a recent lesson that you have learned throughout COVID about the importance of choosing yourself first? Oh, wow. Uh, I can tell you a thousand, but I think, (laughs) I think in this year, this year has been really hard for me in terms of self-love because I've gone to through two really shitty relationships that have tested my self-love and my boundaries. And so I think what I've really, I've, I've learned a few things this year. I've learned if they wanted to, they would. Anyone who wants to fight for you will, and don't expect any apologies from anyone. You can get your own closure without apologies. And I think those are some of the biggest lessons I had to learn, especially during COVID when you, you know, you're, you're, you're spending so much time with yourself, right? And all these things, especially like I, I had a breakup during COVID. So you're spending all this time, like thinking about yourself, what went wrong, what you could have done better. And I just keep looking back at all these relationships I've had and been like, okay, in all of those, I can see where I saw red flags and I just drove right past them. I can see where I made, I was lenient and I shouldn't have been. And I can see where I disrespected myself by not setting up a healthy boundary. And in the book, I kind of talk about at the, towards the end of one of my chapters called relationship. I talk about, um, you need to love yourself first and you need to find someone who loves you. Like love is not a late night text. Love is not a maybe or an almost love is not a situationship and it's okay to have needs. And I think I never, ever thought it was okay to have needs. Needs made me needy. Needs made me a nag. And so 
seeing how these two relationships post book have still fallen into that pattern. I think I've learned, I've had to go back and read my own book. I've literally read my own book and that page just been like, okay, there are lessons you need to learn here. And uh, it's, it's really time you learn them. Mm-hmm. That is so freaking relatable. Yes. Like, yeah. holy shit. Because even I love, oh my gosh, so much to unpack there. But what you were just talking about, about the nagginess or the neediness that you feel like mm-hmm. you, or that society has just surrounded us with these messages that if we have to ask for the things that we need, that it makes us needy. Where in fact, no, it's healthy because that's where healthy boundary creations start. And it's so hard because when you do that, you think that the first time you do it, you think it's going to be done and you've asserted yourself. No, like every time that I finally was like, you know what, I'm putting up a boundary. I got called a nag. I did, Mm -hmm. you know, I got called selfish. I got called crazy. And so you think, oh, maybe it's you, but you just have to keep asserting those boundaries and those needs. But then there are times where it gets so damn exhausting. It's exhausting. And you're just waiting for someone to, and you realize you just, you just, you're waiting for someone to meet you and mm-hmm. be in the ring with you, obviously not physically, but to be like, okay, let's solve this problem. And that, you know, they're not running away or calling you names. They know there's a problem. We need to fix it. And it's exhausting until you find that person that you can do that with. Mm-hmm. Cause we also just chatted pre-recording about how I personally have a fear of conflict or mm-hmm. that for something in me means conflict is done. Conflict fighting means it's over. Same. Same. Yes. So I often have bitten my tongue for things that mean so much to me or that if something doesn't align with my values, again, there's that don't be naggy, don't be needy, don't be bitchy, don't be dramatic, blah, blah, blah. Those messagings just Mm kind of infiltrate my whole brain and my soul. Therefore, I bite my tongue because Mm -hmm. I don't want to fight. But then yes. when I read your book, and I mean, there's no way that the, the fighting that you had with that one particular ex, which I don't want to give too much of the book away because I want people to read it because damn it, it's good. <laughs> but there's one particular relationship that you keep going back to. This relationship is physically, emotionally, mentally, sexually abusive. Mm-hmm. And the fighting throughout that relationship, reading it made my heart race. Yeah. I couldn't place myself in that type of aggression. I I couldn't place myself in that. But then there were other aspects of it when it came to sexual abuse and just even that the way that we feel like prey as women, right? Mm -hmm. So you and I had also talked about the connection of women. I'm leaving this open-ended because I know that you could just go for it after. Um, But just being the prey that there was so much relatability, even though I couldn't relate to the level of conflict in your relationship, there were still so many aspects of being sexualized in the relationship that I could. So if you can kind of give your perspectives on that, I'd be so appreciative. Mm -hmm. Of course. I don't think anyone sets out to be in that kind of relationship that is on top of all of the things that you mentioned in terms of being abusive, also spiritually abusive. Mm -hmm. But I I think a lot of it, when I think back to it and earlier drafts of it, a lot of it comes down to what was portrayed and what I saw growing up in terms of what was what a relationship looked like. And that's not to say that need to blame media, but media plays a huge role. How many films have we seen where some guy throws his girlfriend across the wall and like grabbed her and she's like, has like this orgasmic, like, ah, please no. That tells me that passion can be violent. Or how many songs have there been about toxic relationships, going back to the same person, fighting, you know, fighting, hooking up again, fighting. That's what it taught me. And I don't come from a family where we talked about this and we didn't talk about sex. We didn't talk about health. I was, I was given like the, like, 
a book that's like, here, read this. And even that book, I had to kind of beg for it. So everything I learned about a relationship, it all pointed to fighting for it in every way. If you need to fight verbally, you fight it out. Like you fight through things and that's how you get through it. And it really, even after the relationship was done, took me so much time because so many things that had happened there at to be that age, I think I was about, we, we started dating when I was 16. And actually a lot of this started very soon after that relationship began. Mm. So there's um, a scene that I, I don't know if I can't remember if I, uh, if I included it, but um, about a month or two into it, he had actually like tried to sexually assault me and pinned me under a couch And I thought, oh, it's just boys being boys. And, you know, Gossip Girl, the OC, like, like, like Chuck, he in, in, in the, in Gossip Girl, he would always do that to girls. So I'm like, okay, it's just boys being boys. And the fact that somebody wanted me, I, I assume that that aggression meant desire. So there were so many things in it that I did not understand. And then in that same relationship, I was also sexually assaulted. And I even that I didn't understand. I didn't understand how someone that I could date and spend two, almost two years with could do that to me. Mm-hmm. And I spe- especially didn't understand how drinking was not giving consent. I had no idea. And so I left that relationship and it took years for me to even consider myself an, a victim of sexual assault and it took the whole relationship until that moment where it got physical for me to even consider that the rest was verbally verbal abuse or whatnot. He was stalking me. He was harassing. He climbs like there's a part in the book where I talk about him climbing like a 12 foot fence in the mm-hmm. middle of the night, two hours away, going into my emails like like it's it's terrorism. It's the domestic terrorism. And no one my age was going through it. I would tell my friends and they'd be like, girl you're black, he's Asian, like you can kick his ass. So then that was the other added layer of it. You're a black woman, you're not supposed to get abused, you're supposed to fight back. And the more I fought back, the worse it got. Mm-hmm. So it, it took a long time and it actually, um, I actually didn't want to write about it in the book and I didn't want to write about that. I wrote about the sexual assault, that chapter days before my de- my final deadline because it didn't feel, I just didn't want to go there. And I thought, how can I write a book about campus without these things. And mm-hmm. if I don't put in that relationship with my boyfriend, so much of what unfolded, the drinking, the flashbacks, me not feeling loved had so much to do with that relationship. Yeah. And the way that you write that particular chapter is in the form of a letter. Yes. And I had even written down because I showed you the, the, the amount of sticky notes that I have in this book right now, which is amazing. <laughs> but I actually actually wrote this thing that on this sticky note here. It says, that this chapter is a chapter that so many women can relate to and have formulated in their minds a thousand times. Mm-hmm. Because even the relatability of being afraid to end it mm-hmm. or being told that someone's going to harm themselves if you end the relationship, then it makes you think, well, then that's not the right thing to do then because I don't want them to hurt themselves. And you just right. put yourself in a series of excuses as to why mm-hmm. it's better that you stay. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that was the one chapter I struggled with till the end. And I think people don't really, or maybe it's just me, but I really underestimated the power of memories mm-hmm. and the reach, like re-traumatizing yourself through, through memories. Like this book was not fun to write. Like in every sense of the word, it was not fun. And I would actually like speak to my therapist or I would tell people like, I'm re I'm editing this chapter of my boyfriend. I can't talk to you for like a week. Cause I'm going to be, I'm going to be awful. I'm going to be miserable. I'm going to be irritable. But that was the one chapter where I didn't know how to structure it within the rest of the book because 
I didn't want it to be like, he did this and I did this and he did this. And it was reading almost like a TMZ expose or something. And I wanted it to be intimate, but I also did, I did want to respect myself there and put up that boundary of being like, what do people need to know? And what is like, and what do the people who need to know and want to know, what do they need to know in the littlest, in the smallest of words used? And I think I had rewritten it four days before my final deadline because I was like, this is not working. And I remembered that after all of that was over and there was a restraining order, I used to write him letters and I would write letters to him and just get out all my feelings, but I would never send them. And as I was working on that chapter, I was so desperate because I'm like, I'm not, I'm not happy with this. And I remember thinking I used to write him letters. So let me write this as my kind of last letter to him. Hey friends, The Safe Haven will be right back after this quick break. I'm just curious, this came to me. I always wonder this when people write books and if they kind of mention someone from their past in it, it's like, Uh are they going to know? Are they going to read it? Is someone going to tell them? Is he going to watch the success of this book from a distance and be like, holy shit, has he grown? Has he learned? Has he changed? Has he transformed? You know, is he remorseful? Is he regretful? All of these things. And obviously you just kind of send love and you hope the best and you hope that they are doing okay. But my gosh, what a turbulent time in your life. It's turbulent. And I I don't keep in touch with a lot of people from high school, obviously, you know, from the book, like high school was just hell for me. But it's just interesting because I've had so many teachers from from high school who knew we were dating who knew us very well who knew us like as a couple message and be like I loved your book like it was a hard read but I loved your book but never mentioned him and never mentioned that relationship it almost and you know pe- some people from high school being like hey I was in my coworker mentioned this book and I realized it was you but nobody mentioned him and I just wonder if like they in their mind in the same way they acted when all of this had come out if they just distance themselves from him because it's so hard to imagine someone you know being a perpetrator of violence in such an in such a a violent way it's I'm sure it's hard you know like it's hard for me even when we talk about it I don't even think of him I just think of this this image of him this character of him that's in my book yeah more like the situation itself I love that you addressed that you're looking after your mental health as you're writing as you're editing because you are deep diving into so many dark places of your past Yeah. So I'm curious about other ways that you find balance in your life. Well, like now, I think now that it's over, it's, it's a bit of a celebration, but I think, I think while, while writing it, I think honestly, while writing it, I didn't really have any balance. And last year, my hair actually started to fall out. My hair fell out. I got, yeah, I got like a little vitiligo patch, um, just from the stress of writing this book. And so the, kind, the only things that really kept me sane were going to my therapist, watching videos of babies and dogs and taking a walk. And even those things did not work. Like, I think I think I really underestimated just how traumatic it was because I didn't realize until I wrote it that it was a dark book. Mm-hmm. And the couple the first couple of drafts I did. I actually had like assumed it was going to be a comedy, like a very funny, like Sloan Crosley book. Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, no, this is like really, really dark. And I realized I hadn't processed any of it. So I was writing it and processing it and being like, wow, this shit was really, really bad. So now the ways that I kind of find balance is I've actually found some balance in writing fiction. Mm -hmm. 
um, in embracing spirituality. I've started meditating, which has been amazing. Mm -hmm. Taking longer walks, saying no to things, like not trying to overwork myself. I'm someone who like my entire body will shut down if I'm stressed, like everything, hair falls out, get sick, get a cold. So just taking this time for me, which I've never done, has been the ways that I find balance and trying to assert boundaries. Like I'm not great at it, but if there's an event I want to do, and I've, I've done a lot um, in the last couple of months, but you know, if if I'm just not in a space where I can do it, just saying no and having that peace of mind, it just kind of resets me. Yeah, damn it, saying no can be so hard, but it's so worth it so when you do hard. it. And then you can actually, whether it is go to an event or go out or do this or do that, whatever. And you're actually sitting at home, whether it's by yourself or with a best friend, family member, just in a close, that introvert space. Yes. And you can reset. It's like, oh my gosh, I need to do this more often. I need to say no more often. (laughs) But every time you have to do it, it's hard to do. It's so hard and it's so stressful. And surprisingly, the one thing that has actually balanced me and like completely just centered me is coming home. It never, like, you know, my book is about being like, like my first page is like, I ran away, like, I didn't run away from home, but I was like, I was a sheltered girl. I didn't want to be in Toronto. I didn't want to live at home. I've moved away. And I've stayed away for over a decade. Mm -hmm. And I'm back home now. And I love it. And I never thought that would happen. And I think just being home, being with family after all of this, like, maybe it would have been different if my book didn't come out. But there's something about it that has completely reset me. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. without giving too much away, there's also a a theme of abandonment in the book when it comes mm-hmm. to your dad. So I kind of have a few questions about abandonment and I recognize that there's no relationship with your dad anymore. Mm-hmm. But even realizing, I think you were 12 when you found out yes. that you actually had siblings. Holy, did I have siblings? Yep, I like, did. Wow. Mm-hmm. What was... Like, I mean, you talk a bit about it in the book, but I mean, for the listener's experience here, you think you're an only child. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you find out that you don't have just one or two, like you have numerous siblings. How does that go? Yes. So me and my siblings now say that we have seven that we know of. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So my, my father and my mom, like they had me, they were together for a bit after that they separated. He had custody, he had visitation, he never used it. And so on my mom's side with my grandfather and my grandmother, uh, they worked really hard. Like there was nothing, I, I I didn't need anything. Like I had everything I wanted, but then he kind of popped up again when I was uh, about 11 or 12. And well, actually, sorry, he didn't pop up. I went looking for him mm-hmm. as, as every child does. Like, where's my dad? Who's my dad? And I found him and my mom had taken me over to his place and I won't give away too much, but I basically through a photo, through my photo being taken, I find out that I have a couple more siblings, one who was nine months younger than me, nine months. Mm -hmm. And then as it goes on, I find out that I have more siblings. And it was such a shock because um, for for most of them, my mom didn't know either. Um, I didn't know. And it was like, up until then, you're, you're just turning into a teenager, right? Like, you're third. Oh, you're almost 13. And my entire sense of self was just shattered. Because I'm like, who am I? Mm -hmm. Like, you're an only I was an only child, like, I dreamt of this. I dreamt of having someone to play Monopoly with. Like I was like across the board pretending to be player two. And like all of that was right there and I had no idea. Oh, what was that feeling when you're looking at the photos in the hallway at your grandmother's house mm-hmm. and you see resemblance between these half siblings and yourself? What did that feel like? 
It was so wild. So, and this is my, my father's mother. So my grandmother, my father's side, but she I got, I was in the hallway. She takes my picture and I'm in this moment of like complete vulnerability. Cause I'm an up, I'm uptight and I was an uptight, uptight child. So I'm in the hallway and she's like, smile, smile. And I wouldn't smile. And then when I finally smile, she's like, you look just like, to- like your, your dad's others, other kids, like Tony's other kids. And I'm like, the fuck? So she she takes me inside and she brings out this tin. And in this tin, there are Polaroids of every single one of my father's children in this tin that she took their photo in the hallway. And she pulls out this photo and she goes, this is your sister. Um, and she lives in England. And the second I saw her, I'm like, first of all, she looks exactly like me, but she also looks uncomfortable. She's like literally in the same position of me, which is almost like she's shielding herself. Mm-hmm. And, um, she was like, yeah, she lives in England and my heart just broke. Cause I'm like, how I was 12, there was no Facebook. How on earth am I supposed to find my sister who lives in England? Like, I don't know where in England, I don't know where this, you know, and it could be anywhere. I didn't even have the proper spelling of her name. And so that I spent years looking for her. Like I went through my teens, I became an adult and I spent every day and every night on Facebook, on Google, looking for her until I finally found her. And I said to her, I found her on Facebook after, I think it was several years. And I was like, do you know? And then I gave her our dad's and do you know Tony? And she was like, oh my God, like you're my sister. And she had been looking for me too. And we found out he had actually been withholding my name to her so she knew about me I didn't know about her but every time she'd ask my father he would lie and he would just wouldn't give her a name he, he would gaslight her and he would gaslight all his children because he didn't want us to meet and now I don't know all of my siblings but I know my older sibling I have a younger sibling and then my sister who's lived in England and we're really really close but uh, he never wanted us to know about each other but didn't he put you in touch with your older sister he did he did but he never um that was so he came to my 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 mom's place when I was 18 Mm -hmm. and I hadn't seen him in years I didn't even know I had I didn't even know about my older sister and he goes this is your older sister she wants to get in touch with you and that's how I knew her name that's how I got her phone number but he didn't apologize he didn't explain nothing like I had she had to call me and we had to figure it out so she had also known about me but I I didn't know about her Yeah. Again, I can't fathom that. I've got my myself and my sister Allison, and that's it. And same parents yeah. and all the things. So, I think the the only thing that I could equate that to in in my own life, I guess that's what you can you tend to do when you read something like that that you just can't fathom is just try and find the connections. You would have felt so lost. I felt lost, but I felt like I just felt so like I felt like I was grieving and I was mourning not like this secret because when you're an adult and you find, so I, I, I found my younger sister when I think I was 18. And then my other one, when my other sister, my older sister when I was 19, you didn't grow up together. She only lived like 20 minutes away. This my whole life. And you lose all that time. So yes, it's your sibling and you love each other, but now you have your own lives. Like you approach the situation as friends. I didn't even know, like, just cause you're my sister, how do I know that I can trust you? So I, I went through that process. And after that, I, I actually met her, my older sister, days before the physical altercation with my with my ex-boyfriend. Mm-hmm. So I was already in a place where I was like, I don't know if I can trust you. I can't trust anyone. So I've lost all this time with my siblings that you never get back. And then my sister, she had my niece. And by then I was already, you know, like I was already an adult. And it's just like, I lost all that time. Like I, I never thought I'd be an aunt and I'm an aunt, but I never get to see my niece because I missed all this. 
So it's like, who do you be angry at, right? Or do you just move forward? But it's just like, it's kind of sad, but they're great. Like, I love them to death. And I'm so happy we met, but I just wish we had more time together. Mm -hmm. I guess even too now with COVID and everything, that's definitely altered how you can even (laughs) hang out and spend time together too, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's hard. But my sister in England is getting married and I'm all of our, so me, my sister and our other sister were her, her bridesmaids. So I think it's a beautiful chance to kind of, you know, come together and meet all together and yeah, and celebrate. So it worked out. That's amazing. So my, my mama, my grandma, my mom's mom, and she and I are just so freaking close. We're so close. So she, for her entire life, thought that she was an only child and only found out a couple of years ago that she was the youngest of 14. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. I know. I know. And so she did that saliva test or whatever it's called, 23andMe or something like that, and then found uh-huh. out all of this. And then she was able to kind of network and to figure out how many of her living relatives were actually alive. And because she was the youngest of 14 and she's 76 right now, 70. Oh my gosh. And so obviously all of her siblings, her blood siblings have passed, but it was- right either their significant others or partners that might still be here or their kids and their kids, kids. So she had ended up going to a family reunion or um, a 90th birthday, I think. Anyway, all of that to say that when mama walked into this room, she didn't realize she didn't belong until she felt like she belonged. Oh yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that being able to just put your arms around your family like that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's crazy. I remember my telling my mom not that long ago is like, you know, I'm an only child. I'm, am I going to have to watch my whole family die? And she's like, hey, you have your sisters. And I was like, shit, I have my sisters. Like, yeah. it's just such a nice, like, it's a nice surprise late in, in life. It's like when you get like, like our deans used to sell like the surprise bag. Like I pulled out siblings, so I'm not alone. You know, like it's, it's a really nice, like, it's nice to know that I have that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mean to completely change topics, but there was definitely something else that I wanted to discuss with you. Mm -hmm. There is a chapter towards the end of the book called At All Costs. Yes. In there, there is some very, very vulgar sexualized translations of something that a limo driver had said in reference to you. Mm -hmm. Again, like I said, without giving too much away, I'm going to read the quote, if that's okay. Sure. Okay. The translation from Sudanese to English only captured a fragment of its intent. If you gave me five minutes with that girl, man, I'd fuck her so hard, I'd give her back her pussy in her hand. Yeah. Hearing that that was aimed at you, how do you digest that? I Even you reading it gives me goosebumps because... I don't know how I digested it because that came after me not knowing, um, I'm trying not to give too much away, but just for the context of it, he was following me around the city. Mm-hmm. So to, to think that about me while you're following me, at one point he parks his limo in front of the club. He follows me to a club, parks his limo outside and get, comes into the club and touches me. And I don't know who he is. And to me, it's just, it's, it's something we've all been through where, you know, girls, girls get raped, girls get killed, girls get thrown, you know, pulled into cars. Like to me, I couldn't process that 
a man could think that about me and then be free to like drive around and follow me and me not know that intent Mm -hmm. because that intent to me, it's not just like, Oh, he said something sexual. That is, that's violence. Mm -hmm. That's, that's extremely violent and extremely graphic all said while he's following me around this, around the town. So it was, you know, I didn't want to put that in the book, but it just felt so important. And it felt like something that like, as women, we go through every single day, hoping to God that no one is thinking that about you. I'd love it if you touched on something that we just just briefly mentioned pre-recording about how much relatability I found in this book. Mm-hmm. And I've never had to navigate race or identity in that way. So can you kind of elaborate a bit on what you were hoping wasn't shadowed but feel like might have been shadowed in the book? Yes. Yeah, so I think that as a society, we kind of have a one-track mind. We think about um, one thing at a time. And my book has been a lot of this the content of the book is about what it means to be a woman or grow up as a young woman and that includes assault sexual assault sexual awakening and i think all of that had gotten overshadowed by the race part i rarely get asked in interviews about the sexual violence of the book or my own experience with sexual violence or abuse and I think it's such a shame because I didn't set out necessarily to write a book about race. I wanted it to be a book like more about what it means to be a young black woman. Yes, going through all these things, but also what happens when that kind of trauma, not just racism, but sexual assault, sexual violence is uh, is placed on your body, then what happens to you? And so it feels like it almost got overshadowed and it's a shame because sexual assault and intimate partner violence, both of them equally, almost equally, are just as, are very prevalent crimes, the most prevalent crimes on um, college university campuses across Canada and the US. Um, abuse, intimate partner violence, this age group, 15 to 24, they are the most at risk of intimate partner violence in the country, even in the US. And so I wanted the chance to talk about it, but it seems to constantly get overshadowed. And I think that it does, once again, when I was talking about in the book with all these things of us disappearing as victims or us people not seeing us as survivors or victims of sexual violence because we're having fun and we're having the time of their lives or we were drinking and we did it to ourselves, it always gets overshadowed. And then in my book, it got overshadowed by race. But I think my counter to that would be the amount of times I felt my heart race or that I got goosebumps or that I felt emotional because of the relatability of your words and of your experiences, I think proves how many people will feel the connection to this book. So maybe overall, maybe in the media as it's portrayed as more being about race, but let me tell you, as a white woman, I've experienced a lot of what you talk about, obviously not the things that you talk about when you're navigating race and being mixed or black, but definitely when it comes to sexual violence and yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that there's going to be, because there's such an unfortunate statistic of how many women have experienced sexual abuse, sexual assault, being drugged, right? Being fed that extra drink that they don't need, but they're just, you know, in a vulnerable situation and they take it. So Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and that's exactly what I wanted. Like when I was having these conversations with my mom, that was the first thing she said. She's like, you know, I've been through it. We've all been through it. And I was like, yes, we have. And like, there's this scene that in the book where someone says like, who here has been sexually assaulted? And there's a group of women in this room and everybody raised their hand. Mm -hmm. And I think people just forget that regardless of, of race. Right. And like, I think race plays a huge factor in it, but 
everyone you know or yourself has been sexually assaulted. Your mothers, your sisters, your friends, your aunts, every like nearly everyone you know or in some way. And if it's not if it's not rape or sexual assault, it's those comments like the limo driver, mm-hmm. right? And we've all been there. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. I think what you have started is that crucial conversation about the importance of talking about this and acknowledging it and being aware of what actually happens so that we can better combat it in the future. Yeah. I have a few safe haven style questions for you. Ooh, I'm excited. What are you most proud of? I'm most proud of me, actually. I think I've come a long ass way from who I was even a year ago, two years ago. So I have to say me. I'm most proud of me. I love that answer because over the last couple of weeks, having had these chats with people, being able to actually express pride in oneself, we're always told that we shouldn't be doing it. Mm-hmm. But damn it, we should be. We should be. We should be. This whole time I thought like, I'm going to be proud of my book or whatnot. I'm like, no, I gotta be proud of me. Like, and I think especially for women or women of color, you say things like that, like you toot your own horn, you're, you're considered like arrogant, but I don't think it's that at all. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm proud of me. Good for you. As you should I'm not sorry. I didn't stutter. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. Okay. What do you want to be known for? I want to be known for, I want to be known for my kindness. I think I want to be known for my compassion and I want to be known for helping people come to their own realizations or come to their own healing and doing that through, through writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you had a message for everyone listening, what would it be? I would say know yourself. Back on the South, I think so much of what, so much of our own pain or struggle comes down to not taking enough enough time to be with ourselves, right? Like not finding balance, not taking time for for the things that you love. I think knowing who you are and giving yourself what you need for every single person is so, so important. And it's magical when you start to put yourself first. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's going to lead me to a part B, just like an impromptu part B to that is how do you start your day? I'm just curious. And and how would a perfect morning start for you to set yourself up best? So the way that I start my day or my ideal day when I can is I wake up, I make my coffee, I come back to my desk and I light a few candles. I pull two tarot cards for the day for what I need to know. <laughs> and then I pull two oracle cards for what I need to surrender for the day, write it down. And then I drink my coffee. I'm, I, I probably will, will meditate on some crystals, like five minutes, 10 minutes. That's it. Check emails and then start writing on working on whatever project I'm working on. So if I'm writing a book, I'm doing that. If I'm working on, um, like another kind of project, I'm doing that and just writing all day. And that is, and then going for a walk and being in green space. Like that's my perfect day. And I try to do it. Um, and then at nighttime, reading a book, like getting back to reading, reading a couple of chapters and then going to bed. Mm, that sounds glorious. It does. I am it? so into it. Yes. Yes. I'm almost there. I'm like two thirds of the way there. I haven't got back on the book train, but when I do, I will be like, I will be up in my infrequency. Yes. Higher yeah. vibrations. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, I was actually going to ask you, so you're not currently reading anything? Yes. So one of the books that I'm reading is Highway of Tears by Jessica McDiarmid. 
So it's about the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and uh, just like the pursuit of justice. So that is on my list of things to read ASAP. So I'm really excited about that. And I really want to read, I think it's called Unspeakable Acts. Sarah, I don't remember her last name, but she wrote The Real Lolita. Okay. Because I am just like a true crime junkie. Like I love true crime. So those two definitely. Okay. Oof, I love that. I'm definitely going to be looking up this Highway of Tears book. Yes. Okay. Now for anyone listening, where can they find you on social media? Where can they follow along? So you can follow me on Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter. And on Twitter, I am at Eternity Martis. And on Instagram, you can follow me at Eternity. So it's Eternity with three E's. E-T-E-R-N-I-T. E-E-E. <laughs> and I will have that linked at the bottom of the podcast notes. <laughs> I don't know why it still says that. I need to change it. But I love it. Eternity. It's cute, right? Eternity. <laughs> yep. People actually message me. People message me and be like, hello, Eternity. And like they put the three E's. I think that's my name. Really? Which is kind of cute. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Doesn't it actually, <laughs> if you actually go to your page, though, doesn't it say your, your actual name? Yes, which irks me. Like, sometimes people be like, hello, Martis. I'm like, that's my last name. Yeah. But people I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much. You are wonderful. I'm so glad we got to connect. Me too. And I hope that we can connect again. Hey, are you planning on writing any more books anytime soon? Do you have another one in the works? I I do. Um, I'm thinking of fiction, mm-hmm. thinking of a fiction book, but I'm not too sure. I have like five ideas. Nonfiction is my thing, but I've found, especially with this pandemic, such a thrill and a um, an escape in fiction. Mm-hmm. So very likely uh, short stories and fiction. Nice one. Well, I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. Eternity, thank you so much. Of course. Thank you, Amanda. Eternity, thank you so, so much for joining me on The Safe Haven. I appreciate you and your work immensely. That book... I tore through it. And if you remember, I had so many sticky notes in it prior to our recording. I loved it. Everyone, you need to get your hands on Eternity's book. They said this would be fun. Race, campus life, and growing up. To everyone listening, I recognize the privilege that comes with my platform, and I am committed to creating a safe, brave, and inclusive space with intention. If this episode has hit you right in the heart or inspired you in any way, Please screenshot the screen while you're listening, send it to your friends, and share it in your Instagram stories. Please be sure to tag us at the Safe Haven Podcast so we can personally thank you for it. If today is the start of your journey into the depths of anti-racism, learning and unlearning of old ways, be kind to yourself. Try not to feel burdened by shame or guilt. Keep moving, keep growing, and keep leading with love. And I will talk to you next week.